Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be looking at the book of Romans again today. Last Sunday, we began a series on Romans chapters 4 and 5 that we called the ABCs of faith. We've seen how uh, our connection to God, the, the key that turns the ignition of our salvation, is not our works, the good things that we do, and it's not the ceremonies that we participate in, but it is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We saw that last week in the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 4. And today we're going to look at a second section of Romans 4, uh, verses 13 through 25, as we see more about how we connect with God through faith. But before we, we look at those verses together, uh, I want us to talk about trophies for a moment. Uh, we like trophies. Many of you in this room have probably won one. Maybe you could think back to some point in your childhood when you won a trophy for some contest that you were in. Or maybe you're a child in this room and you just won one. You, you have a trophy that you won for some event that you participated in. Uh, but we all have a, an understanding of what a trophy is. Now, in, in 2016, people can be awarded trophies for a variety of reasons. One way that somebody can be awarded a trophy is through their high performance in an event. Whether they win the league, they win the, the tournament, they, they place in one of the first couple of places, uh, they're that most outstanding player. There's a number of, of things that can lead to someone getting a trophy based on their performance. That's one of the ways that you can get a trophy in 2016. Now, what is another way that you can get a trophy in 2016? And what I'm getting ready to tell you is, gonna, is something that bothers many of you in this room. A participation trophy, right? Another way that you can get a trophy is merely by showing up. If you participate in, uh, on a team in the league, just by virtue of being there, that, that you can win a trophy. Now, uh, up here I have a trophy um, that is for the uh, Norman Youth Soccer Association champions in 2015. Now, now this is a trophy that is based on performance. The, the, the team won the league. And, and I know what you're thinking, um, what position did I play? Um, but, but the reality is I was not on this team, but my son was. Uh, they, they won a trophy based on their performance and how they did in the league. But, but, but many others might win a trophy merely by participating. Uh, the coach, the league, whatever, might buy a trophy for everybody uh, for participating. Now, we are, are used to those kinds of awards going out in 2016. And because of that, some of that thinking about trophies might influence our understanding of how God awards salvation. The, the trophy of salvation, how does God award it? Is it something that he gives to only the righteous elite, those who are at the top of the standings in the world, who do the most good? Does God award salvation like a trophy to those who have lived a righteous life? Or does God award salvation as a participation award? If you have participated in the human race, God will give you salvation. These are two common ideas that exist in the world today. Some see salvation as something only that we can earn through our performance. Others see salvation as something given to all merely by participation. But, but what is it? 
And what would God's word tell us about that construction of the way that God awards salvation? You know, we've seen in, in the book of Romans that there are problems with both of those ways. When we think about uh, salvation being something given to the righteous elite, what is the problem with that idea from the book of Romans? How many are righteous? There are none righteous, not even one. So if salvation is given as a, an award based on our performance, then no one could ever get it. And what is the problem with understanding salvation as merely a participation award, as a part of the human race that we, we get it? Well, the problem with that we've seen from the book of Romans is that though we are all unrighteous, that the wrath of God, not trophies of salvation, but the wrath of God is demonstrated against all unrighteousness. And so if salvation is given merely to those who outperform others, there is no hope. If salvation is given just as a participation award, uh, that's a wrong thinking because God is holy and he is just, and that prevents him from merely just giving it to everyone. So if that's the case, how is it that salvation comes? How is it that God awards What we see in the book of Romans is that salvation is given in a different way. It is given not on the basis of our performance. It is given not on the basis of our participation. It is given on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we're going to see that again today as we look at Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. So if you've got a Bible, open to to Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. We're, We're going to read these verses that that illuminate this idea for us in greater depth. God inspired these words for us so that we could see and understand them today. I'm going to read them for us, and then we'll back up and and explore them a little more in depth. Romans 4, beginning in verse 13, the apostle Paul writes and says this. He says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, in those 
12 verses, we see again a reminder that faith is the key that turns the ignition of our salvation. Faith in Christ and his work is what connects us to this blessing of salvation. It is not on the basis of our good works. It is not on the basis of our participation in ceremonies like communion or baptism or circumcision. It is about what Jesus has done for us and us embracing it by faith. And in chapter 4, Paul has been making that argument, really dialoguing with people from a Jewish background primarily who would have wanted to object to this idea that, that the key to our salvation is faith in Christ. They wanted to say that it was about something else. It was about our works, about our ceremonies. And those people who were objecting were primarily from a Jewish background. So Paul is arguing here that salvation is by faith, and he wants to argue it with a Jewish kind of argument. And so he is arguing on the basis of the patriarch of the Jewish faith, Abraham. And he says here that that it is Abraham's faith in the promise of God, not in his adherence to the law, that unlocked salvation for him. We see that in verse 13. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, what is this law that is being referred to here? We know the law as the, the things that God gave to his people so that they would understand his holiness and, and would understand his redemptive plan. Now, where did God first give that law? He gave it to Moses, right? Moses went up on the mountain and, and God gave him some tablets with how many commandments on them? Ten of them. You guys have read this book. And he comes down from the mountain with these ten commandments. And then over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Moses elaborates on those ten commandments in in the first five books of our Old Testament. And we understand more about God's character, about who he is, about his holiness. But one of the things that became clear in history was that God's law was given to demonstrate that God was holy, but that we were not, and that humanity had an inability to live up to the holy standard of God. For over a thousand years, God's people lived under the law, and they failed. It was a demonstration of the fact that God was holy, and we were not. God was demonstrating through history and through the law that salvation was not through the law because we can't achieve it that way. In order for us to have hope, God must do it a different way. He must fulfill the law and provide salvation through a different way. And that way, of course, is through the promise of life in Christ. But Jewish people wouldn't have seen it that way in the first century. They would have thought that, to some degree, their adherence to the law unlocked salvation for them. It gave them a step up, a leg up in the conversation. And they would have wanted to anchor that idea back to Abraham. But Paul here makes the point that Abraham was declared righteous by God, not by his adherence to the law. Now, how do we know that that's true? Well, we know it's true partly from a historical argument. Abraham received this promise of God years before the law ever came. As a matter of fact, this promise that was first given to Abraham takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. I want to read these verses for us because if you're unfamiliar with Abraham's story, 
you really need to, to know at least Genesis 12, 1 through 3 for this to make sense. God comes to, to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to, to make of you a great nation. Now, how many children did Abraham and his wife Sarah have when God issued that statement? Zero, no kids. And yet God said, I will make of you a great nation. And God said, I will give you a country. I will give you land, the land that I will show you. How much land did he own in Palestine at that time? Zero. But God said, I'm going to give you some land. And God said, I will bless all the peoples of the earth through you. And, and how much of a global blessing was Abraham at that time? He may have been a heck of a guy, but he was not a global blessing. And yet God said he would do that. And before Abraham had done anything, God made a promise to Abraham that I will make you an heir of the world, what Paul says in Romans 4. 430 years later, Galatians 3.17 will tell us, God gave the law. This demonstrates for us what Paul is arguing here in, in Romans 4. You see, Abraham's connection to his salvation had nothing to do with his adherence to the law. It had everything to do with the promise of God. Before Abraham had done anything good or bad, before he had ever heard of the law, before he had ever lived it out, he merely believed what God said was true. And because of that, God counted it to him as righteousness. That's what Paul is arguing here. So it is foolish for anyone to look to Abraham and say that Abraham is a demonstration that the key to unlocking salvation is adherence to the law because Abraham didn't even have the law. It was by faith that he was saved. It's by faith that we are saved as well. He makes the statement in 14, for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. What, what, what Paul is, is, is indicating there is that you can't have it both ways. God is not going to change his way. God didn't come to one people and said, you're going to be saved uh, on the basis of what you do, and then come along later and, and say, no, no, it's on the basis of promise. Or, or even differently, that God did not come at one point and say, you're going to be saved on the basis of a promise that I give you, and then come along later to other people and say, you're going to be saved on the basis of what you do. It, from the beginning, salvation has been tied to the promise of God embraced by the faith of his people. All the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis, all the way through God's dealings with his people, even in the Old Testament, what God desired from his folks, what God desires from you and me is faith, not an adherence to the law. And the reason for that is because we cannot achieve the law. The law is given to point out the holiness of God, but also to demonstrate our lack of holiness, our inability to keep it. This is what he says there. He says, for the law brings wrath. Through the law, we understand that we're sinners, objects of God's wrath apart from his intervention. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The idea is that 
Salvation is, is by pr- a promise believed in faith. It is not by the law. This is the way you can tell the difference between those things. Salvation that is on the basis of law goes something like this. You shall, then God will. If you, then God does. You've got to secure God's pleasure by, by adhering to the law, and if you do that, then God will give you this. It's a conditional situation. This is how much of the world understands a connection with God. If we do this, God will be happy. If we do this, God will be impressed. If we do this, God will give us salvation. But what Paul is arguing in Romans 4 is that it's, it's not on the basis of law. It's on the basis of a promise, on, on the basis of grace, on the, on the basis of us receiving that in faith. And that, that goes a little differently. Instead of you shall, then God will, it's God will, will you believe? God has come to us and he has, he has promised to do for us what we cannot do on our own. And then he's just asking us if we believe it. He comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a mighty nation. I'm going to make you a blessing to all people. Do you believe me, Abraham? Abraham believed. And God counted it to him as righteousness. God comes to us and he says, I want to forgive you of your sins. I want to connect you with me forever. I want to give you my righteousness in Christ. Do you believe me? He does not say, Perform for me, and then I'll make my decision. It's on the basis of grace, on the basis of promise, on the basis of faith, not law. Now, we live in a day and age where adherence to the Old Testament law is not something we talk about a lot. As a matter of fact, there are things in there that flat out scare us. We think about all the the dietary laws and the cleanliness laws and and all these things that that are further explained and understood as we look at all of what God tells us in the New Testament and the book of Hebrews and and a number of things. Um, But there's a lot in this Old Testament law. And really, for us today, for the most part, the Old Testament law is not our hang-up. But law thinking infiltrates so much of our minds. Law thinking gets into our, our psyche, and it affects how we view how God looks at us and how we even look, view each other. We think that somehow our ability to maintain a standard is what would connect us to God. We think that others' ability to maintain a standard is what connects them to God. And this is how it shows up. You ever thought this, said this, whatever? How could that person be a Christian and do blank? How could that person be a Christian and vote for blank? How could somebody be a Christian and hang out with blank? How can somebody be a Christian and whatever? See, that's, that's law thinking, folks. That's law thinking. If we adhere to the standard enough, then God will accept us. That, that's, that's law thinking. But what is it on the basis of? It's not on the basis of law. It's on the basis of a promise that we receive in faith. Because, see, if it's on the basis of law, then the standard we want to export to others, we need to apply to ourselves. How can I be a Christian when I blank? How can you be a Christian when you blank? Well, the answer is simple, folks. We can be a Christian in spite of our sinfulness because we have a God who has given us a promise. 
a promise that he's asking us to believe in spite of our sinfulness. If it's not one way, it's another, but God is offering us life. He's offering us forgiveness. He's offering us the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. He's asking us, do you believe it? You see, our salvation is found by faith in Christ, not by adherence to the law. The second thing that we see in this passage, though, is this. It it really speaks to the the direction of our faith. What is our faith in? And our faith ultimately is in God. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in our experience. It's not in our performance. Our faith is in God. And this is articulated so beautifully by Paul in chapter 4, the second half of verse 17 and following. He writes and he says, in the presence of God in whom he believed. Now, faith and belief are, are words that are, that are somewhat synonyms. They're, they're words that have a, a same core to them. A belief and faith, uh, trusting that something is true, embracing it as a reality. That's what God is asking us to do. But it says here that, that he is anchoring that faith and that belief in God. Now, we live in a, in a world, we live in a society that, that wants to chip away at this word faith, wants to mock it, wants to lampoon faith. Faith is for the weak-minded. Faith is for the stupid. Faith is a cop-out. Faith is a crutch. You ever heard anybody say anything like this? There's a, a writer today uh, by the name of Richard Dawkins. He's one of the, the new atheists who's out there writing and purporting this kind of worldview. This is what Richard Dawkins says about faith. Maybe you've read this or maybe you've had somebody share something like this with you. He says, contrary to popular opinion, faith is, uh, faith is uh, I'm sorry, here we go. If, if you ask people why they are convinced of the truth of their religion, they don't appeal to their heredity. In other words, they're not going to look just to their their family and say, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christian. He says, put like that, it sounds too obviously stupid. Nor do they appeal to evidence. There isn't any. And nowadays, the better educated admit it. No, they appeal to faith. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Now, that is kind of a flamethrower comment, isn't it? I, I look at some of the, the, the expressions on your face. Um, you're like, why did he put that on the screen? Um, this is what some people think, right? Some people think that, that faith is this blind leap. With no evidence, just a cop-out, a crutch, we've bought into a fairy tale. That's what Dawkins believes. Is that really what faith is? No. No, Dawkins is wrong. Faith is trusting the God who has revealed himself to us. Based on who he is and and how he's revealed himself to us, we, we embrace him. John Stott responds to this in a beautiful way. He says, it is always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. It is always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. In other words, it makes sense for us to trust the God who created us. 
It makes sense for us to trust the God who can do all things, who raised Jesus from the dead. It just makes sense for us to embrace him and to trust him and to take him at his word. Who is related with people throughout history. It makes sense. It's reasonable for us. Now, I've quoted Dawkins and I've quoted Stott. I want to give you one more source, and that is Mr. Miyagi. And really, this is a helpful thing. And I'm going to go all the way back to Pat Morita and... and, uh, uh, Ralph Macchio, okay? I'm going to ignore the, the more recent iteration of this story. Um, I'm going to go back to the 1980s and the movie The Karate Kid. Now, uh, there was this guy, Daniel LaRusso, who, who lived upstairs in an apartment, and he was getting beat up at school. And he needs to find a way to defend himself. And so he goes downstairs, and he meets Mr. Miyagi, this, this older Japanese man who lived downstairs. And, and at first, Daniel doesn't know what to make of this guy. Matter of fact, Mr. Miyagi is asking him to do some strange things like paint the fence and wax on, wax off. Right? You guys have seen this, right? Uh, Mr. Miyagi is training him in these ways, and Daniel LaRusso is not sure that he can really trust Mr. Miyagi. But then Daniel begins to, to learn a little more about Mr. Miyagi. And he sees the power that he has and the wisdom that he has and his ability in karate. And he begins to lean in more and more and it begins to make sense. And then he, he puts his full trust in everything that he's taught him. And he eventually does the crane technique. You remember this? And he wins the fight. Now, was it unreasonable for Daniel LaRusso to trust Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate? Absolutely not. If you're in this room and you need to learn karate, you need to go find Mr. Miyagi. He'll help you out. It's reasonable to embrace him. And in a very similar way, what what Paul is saying here is that it was absolutely reasonable for Abraham to trust the God who created him. It's absolutely reasonable to trust the God who has the power to raise from the dead. It is absolutely reasonable for you and me to trust the God who created us. It is absolutely reasonable for us to trust the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And there is evidence in this universe of the origin of creation that God had created this place. And there's an empty tomb outside Jerusalem that points to the fact that Jesus has a power over death, that God has the ability to raise him from the dead. So it is absolutely reasonable for us to trust God. And this is what Paul says here in verse 17, he says he believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul says it's, it's reasonable for us to believe this. He goes on and he says, certainly Abraham believed in God. He was trusting in him. His faith was in him, not in his situation or his circumstance. Because Abraham's circumstance and situation, his experience, did not look like God was going to make good on his promise. Verse 18 says, he, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He had been told that he would have many kids, and yet how many kids did he have? None. A little later on, he's getting older and older, he, he and his wife come up with a plan to, to have a child through, through Hagar, and they have it, and God says, that's not the kid I was talking about. And he keeps getting older, and he keeps getting older until Abraham's almost 100 years old. Sarah is almost 90 years old. And yet God had said, I'm going to make your offspring numerous. He looked at his life, he looked at his experience, and it didn't look fruitful. He believed God. 
It says he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. It is not biologically reasonable for a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman to have one child, much less be the father and mother of a nation. And yet he believed. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham believed even when his experience around him did not look promising. He believed that God could do what he said because he believed that his God was trustworthy. Not because he thought that he could add anything to the equation, but because he believed that God could do it on his behalf. Now, why did God have Abraham and Sarah go through that whole experience? We find out in verse 23, it wasn't just for them. It wasn't because God just wanted to to irritate them. He did it because he wanted to illustrate something for you and me. He says this declaration of their righteousness by faith was not for them alone, but it is for us also. It was written for our sake. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, Abraham and Sarah's experience of having nothing of their own to add to the equation and only able to trust God to deliver this promise of a son of a nation is a picture of our hope of salvation. See, we have no ability through our good works, through our adherence to the law, through our participation in ceremonies, we have no ability to add anything to our salvation equation. Though our bodies, spiritually speaking, are as good as dead, God wants to give them life. He wants to give them righteousness. And he wants to do that through Jesus Christ. William Mounts says this about faith. He says, faith is helplessness reaching out in total dependence upon God. Our hope for salvation is is not in, in, in what we add. It's in our helplessness and trusting God to do what we cannot Warren Wiersbe says this of this. He says, the application to salvation is clear from this passage. God must wait until the sinner is dead and unable to help himself before he can release his saving power. As long as the lost sinner thinks he is strong enough to do anything to please God, he cannot be saved by grace. It was when Abraham admitted that he was dead that God's power went to work in his body. It is when the lost sinner confesses that he is spiritually dead and unable to help himself, that God can save him. Where are you at on that continuum today? Where are you at? When you think of your own ability to please God, do you, do you think of your ability as as good as dead? Or do you think you can do a little bit and you just need Jesus to fill in the gap? The reality is we have no ability to please a holy God on our own, and we absolutely, desperately need to cry out to God in faith and ask him to do what we cannot, to give us through Christ the righteousness that God can only give by faith. Have you ever trusted in Christ with that kind of desperation? I want to end our time. I'm going to 
encourage us to trust Christ today. But before I do that, I want to take us back to where we began. We, we began our, our time today uh, talking about trophies, right? Some trophies given by our performance, other trophies given as a participation. And we talked about some of the problems in that analogy with salvation. But I want to offer you an assertion, and that is that my son Josh, who is nine years old now, um, got a medal for completing a marathon. He got a trophy. Now, that sounds impressive for a nine-year-old. It's even more impressive when you know that he got that when he was not nine, but when he was eight months old. Now, how did Josh get this medal? Did he, did he get it because he performed in such a way so as to, to win the prize? No, I did not walk behind him and poke him with sticks while he crawled 26.2 miles. Do not call DHS on me. We did not do that, okay? It was not by his performance. Did, did Josh get this medal merely because he's a part of the human race? Did everybody get one of these? Did you get one of these in the mail? Was it mailed to you? No, he didn't get it because of that. He got the medal because his dad went and ran the race. And I'm not going to tell you how slow I did it. Um, the clock may still be running on that one. But, uh, but he, he got the medal because I went and ran it. And I came back and I gave it to him out of my love for Here's the picture of salvation, friends. The picture of salvation is that we do not have the ability. We have no more ability to please a holy and a perfect God on our own than an eight-month-old has of running a marathon. But Jesus came and ran the race for us with perfection so that he might give to us the trophy of salvation and eternal life. And what he asks us is not to train and go and compete in the race and win it. He asks us merely to receive by faith the victory he's already won. Have you done it? Father, I, I just want to thank you. I thank you for today. I thank you for these dear people as we gather here around your word. I thank you that you can encourage us with such amazing truths that remind us that our, our hope for life, our hope for eternity is found not in our performance, found not in our ceremonies, found not in our adherence to a standard, but it is found merely it is a gift that you offer us in Christ who ran the race and won. Father, thank you that you offer us this gift. And Father, I, I pray today for many in this room who have forgotten that fact, who have floated back in the direction of law and who have, have walked in here today feeling that they must do something to secure your favor. And Father, I pray that this passage would be liberating to them as they are reminded of what you have won for them in Christ. But Father, I pray also today for any who are here who have never come to know this gift of life in Christ, who have come in here today and 
feel like they need to train and run the race before they can win the prize. But Father, I pray today that they would understand that they have no ability to win the race. They have as much ability to win that race of righteousness as an eight-month-old has of running a marathon. But Father, you have offered to give them eternal life of righteousness because of what Jesus has done and who he is. As your loving Father to them, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would receive in faith the trophy that you offer them. We pray these things in Jesus' name.